Thank you for taking the time to check out the Inside Myanmar podcast. If you like what you hear, we would be very grateful if you might consider rating, reviewing, and or sharing this podcast. Every little bit of feedback helps. Also, be sure to subscribe to the Inside Myanmar podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever else you get your podcasts. And if your feed is not in your podcast player, please let us know and we will ensure it can be offered there. Today is a returning guest of the podcast, Zachary Awuza, uh, who for most listeners hopefully needs no introduction, but uh, if this is your first time uh, hearing him, Zach, would you like to give us a brief rundown of who you are and what you do? I'm a Southeast Asian security analyst. I've been covering the region for 30 years. Excellent. And so let's let's dive right into what we want to discuss today. Let's start with the conflict. Previously, when we had you on, you you had some um, sort of, let's say, negative forecasts for the direction that the conflict was taking. Um, it, it seems that situation has developed a little bit, particularly in regions like Sagaing, where the, where the fighting is very intense. Um, what is what is the Tamado experiencing uh, right now fighting the resistance? Well, where we saw fighting previously, uh, Sagang, uh, uh, Kayan State, Mon State, that's still going on. Uh, there's still intense fighting right now going on in Chin State. Um, but in the past few months, there have been new battlefields uh, in, in just going on right now. Uh, there's intense fighting in southern Kachin State, um, in northern Shan State, uh, and against new combatants. Uh, you know, the regime has been careful not to broaden the battlefield. They're already fighting a multi-front war, and yet... Right now, they're engaged in just intensive fighting against the Tang National Liberation Army, uh, in uh, who are c- 
control the road up to the border town uh, with China, Muse, um, you have uh, intensified fighting in uh, Kaya State uh, after some of the border guards forces that had been aligned to the junta defected over to the NUG. Um, so we're seeing not just kind of the, the fighting where we had last, when the last time I was on the podcast, um, but you have these new battlefields that the military really seems uh, unprepared for and certainly doesn't have the manpower or resources. And yet they're fighting, they've chosen to fight in these places. So just just to clarify, are we talking about a restructuring and reorganization of the way that the the revolutionary forces are naming themselves and grouping themselves, or are we talking about completely fresh forces joining the conflict? So I think you're seeing intensified fighting in places like Sagang uh, just because the military is desperate to break the back of the NUG and their PDFs. Um, they really think that they can, with enough air power, with enough troops, that the NUG can be broken. Um, and they're going at this through just sheer terror, uh, air attacks, long-range artillery, but just that village-to-village arson attacks, um, attacks on civilians. So that has been intensified. We've seen intensified fighting in Chin State. Uh, there's this one town, Tantlung. Uh, that has was for a while very much uh, almost thoroughly under the control of the NUG and their PDFs. Um, but right now we know that the kind of the, the last little bastion of, of uh, military troops uh, has been able to evacuate their personnel uh, overland by by ambulance. So that's kind of suggesting that they've been throwing in resources there to uh, retake some of the main arteries up into Chin State. Um, Kachin, uh, they definitely have gone on the offensive after the Kachin kind of walked out of peace talks earlier this year. Um, obviously, the military is desperate to control some of the jadeite mining in the state. Um, uh, a recent convoy uh, uh, sailed up the Irrawaddy River as far as they could and now are marching in on Kachin Independence Army uh, positions. But again, and, and then you have uh, uh, in Kayan State uh, where, where they've been uh, fighting the Karen National Liberation Army. Um, so those battlegrounds are ongoing. Uh, you might be seeing a little bit more uh, violence in Bago, uh, some bombings, uh, again, largely trying to control the, the lines of communication. You know, Myanmar is a big country and it just doesn't have a lot of roads. And so those, those key arteries are really important. But, you know, it's places like Kaya State uh, that really uh, have been 
new fronts for the military, uh, certainly in the past uh, five months. Um, so that's been a, a new space. As I said, uh, one of the border guards forces that had been uh, in a tense alliance. I, I'm not saying it was a close alliance, but a, in alliance with, with the military defected. Um, and so the military had no, no option but to uh, intensify attacks there, even though they're just really running short on manpower. Um, the border with China, it's just incredible how much of the border is starting to be on reach to the military. So border towns like Muse are really important. The government might control the town, but they don't have full control over the road in and out. And so you have groups like the Tang National Liberation Army that have been supportive in many ways of the NUG since the 1 February 2021 coup, but have not been fighting alongside the NUG um, in offensive operations. The, the TNLA would fight defensively if the military attacked them, but the military had been smart enough until recently to kind of lay off them. And Recently, we've seen just a huge reversal, um, and I think a lot of it is the control of the road. They really need border trade with China just because sanctions are taking a bite. The country is so short on foreign exchange, and yet they can do business with China in chat or UN. And so those the border trading is so important to them right now. So you you say that the military is already spread thin and they're choosing to engage in these new fronts. When you say the military is choosing to engage, do they really have a, a choice or are they making a, a poor strategic decision? To me, it's a very poor strategic decision. Um, there, you know, everything we're learning about the, the military now from leaked documents, you know, show that the uh, light infantry battalions are running very light. You know, uh, there was one that kind of made uh, the news a couple weeks ago that the unit had 132 men down from kind of the, the minimum of 200. And even uh, that uh, uh, floor had been lowered already just because the manpower issues are, are so dire. Um but we're starting to get pictures from other light infantry battalions that they too uh, are running very low. Probably 50% uh, are, are around 150 men or, or lower. And they're just running them at just unsustainably high operational tempos. The troops must truly be exhausted. Uh, all that that pillaging and looting and targeting civilians and arsoning uh, is not easy for them. Um, I, 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 I'm sorry about my dark humor there, but um, really we're, we're, we're watching these light infantry battalions uh, just operate on really, on, they must be running on fumes. So, 
Okay, so let's talk about the light infantry battalions. Um, so the light infantry divisions, as we've covered in the past, are the the sort of the the true psychotic nadir of the of the Burmese military. Now, the numbers, at least theoretical numbers that we had from before the coup, we were talking. Correct me if I'm wrong. Something like twelve divisions. Each of those divisions was supposed to comprise five thousand men, divided into ten battalions of five hundred men. Uh, which right. is still rather light for a battalion in modern military terms. You're now saying that these 500-man battalions, in many cases, are down to 150. They're, they're yeah. companies. I mean, very clearly, the, the the estimates of the light infantry battalions, even at the start of the coup at 500 men, was, was clearly an overstatement. They just don't have it. Uh, researchers... Yevon Hain at U.S. Institute of Peace, uh, Andrew Self from Griffin University in Australia, uh, have kind of looked through some of the, the leaked data and, and really found the, those were very, uh, on paper, yes. In reality, no. And then you start to look at uh, the these uh, battalions that comprise them and everything we're seeing right now from defectors or documents that have been leaked uh, are showing that they're they're running very light but so the line infantry divisions um possibly because of their psychosis have shown characteristically very low levels of defection we, we've seen defection from the military but largely for as far as i know the defections have predominantly come from back end um, mm-hmm. logistics uh, teams uh, you know there, there was an announcement made recently of an actual combatant defecting with a rifle and and you know five five uh, uh, magazines 30 round magazines and this was considered newsworthy mm-hmm. um, so if the light infantry divisions numbers are so low and if they're not known for their defections what's what what's driving that um they are losing men. Uh, without a doubt, the, the PDFs are better armed. Uh, they're getting a steady supply of ammunition. So there are battlefield losses. Uh, we also know that the military doesn't really have great battlefield medicine. So uh, people that are wounded that should live are, are often dying. Uh, it's what they call the golden hour. And uh, uh, they're, they're losing troops they should not lose. Mm-hmm. Um, the second thing is that we don't know that much. It's it's really impossible to come up with a figure for desertions, um, people that are just kind of disappearing um, rather than defecting. Those that defect, we, we do have kind of good idea because it's been handled by a couple different civil society organizations. Uh, They're getting access to the media. Um, Those announcements are coming out, as you noted. I think it's important to ask the question, why are defections so low? Um, And they really are. Uh, I, I think that's taken a lot of people, including myself, by surprise. So you got to kind of ask what it, what is the basis that the military can keep these people in, and a lot of it is just actual physical control. Um, they live on military bases. Their families live in military bases. Their money, what little they have, are in military banks. They monitor 
large withdrawals. Uh, people use Mitel cell phones um, and they monitor communications and social media postings. So there's a lot of internal policing. They live in such a bubble. Uh, family members are often working at military-owned uh, corporations um, so that they live in this entire ecosystem where they are policed. And then on top of it, if you think about just the daily war crimes that they commit, I think there would be a lot of nervousness about defecting and thinking that you would be embraced or uh, whether, uh, you know, you think that you will get a, a fair hearing um, because they know exactly what they're doing every day in the villages, uh, whether it's sexual violence or arsoning or uh, intentionally killing civilians. Um, so there's kind of this sense right now of either we hang together or we hang separately. And finally, um, just never forget the, the power of indoctrination. Uh, they've always been told that they are the only people that can hold this otherwise fractious country together. Um, this has been beaten into them, literally beaten into them uh, since the first day they joined the military. Um, so there, there are many reasons why you have individual defections, and yet we're still not seeing unit level defections. Hmm. So it, would it be a matter of that just paranoia and mistrust and that fear that if you talk to your your unit uh, mate and you say well i'm thinking of defecting that they might turn around and and hand you into the authorities there is that um what we're also seeing though in lieu of defections are a growing number of commanders who are refusing orders um, so recently there were three light infantry battalion or two light infantry battalion and one other commander that refused to attack the KIA. Um, they were arrested um, and their replacements, two of them, uh, kind of refused orders as well. So we're starting to see this. I, I, I don't want to say it's a trend, um, but we're starting to see more and more instances of these, um, you know, they, they come up because the, the people are arrested and, and put on trial. Uh, so it is happening. Um, it's just probably not happening enough. Is there, a, I, I, it makes sense to me, if I were in that situation and my choices were pretty grim, is there a, a, a sense where soldiers at the lower levels and even at, at um, NCO level might do what you would do in a company that pays your wages, but you hate working there, where you, you look busy, you look as though you're compliant, but you make sure that you never actually do anything particularly well. You don't defy orders, but you just find ways to not actually put yourself at risk. I think we see that in the non light infantry division units. So you have territorial forces that are, um, you know, where units are, are, are from that region. 
they tend not to be used as much in kinetic military operations. They're more on defensive postures. And I think that's exactly what you see in places like that. They're, they're not used for frontline duties very much. They try to stay within the, the wire. Um, it's those uh, light infantry battalions, though, that are constantly on the move. They're being moved around the country. They're constantly uh, engaged in operations, milling, moving uh, from, from village to village. So it's, it's really hard for those people to look busy because they're, they're just not sitting still. Okay, so let's let's talk about that element of it. So light infantry divisions, again, I'm not I'm not familiar with military internal operations, but from my understanding, the light infantry divisions themselves are just trigger pullers. They don't have internal uh, support networks. They don't have uh, transport capabilities. They have to rely on other units to do that. Is that the case? That's mostly the case. I mean, they have a, a, a small kind of battalion headquarters staff with some um, uh, transportation uh, units, you know, lorries and things like that. But I think you're exactly right that they're completely dependent on other units, you know, maybe uh, uh, the Air Force for helicopter lift in and out of, you know, Chin State, um, or they're responsible, f- uh, uh, reliant on other uh, uh, units for artillery uh, support. Um, for the most part, the light infantry battalions, you're, you're really talking almost all are uh, ground pounders, just guys w- with guns marching from village to village doing the real dirty work. But so if, if, if there is weakness within the military structure when it comes to logistics and transportation does that even if the light infantry divisions were at their full hypothetical capacity of you know sixty thousand uh armed men would that seriously limit their capacity to get from point a to point b and do the things they want to do well right now just look at the number of fronts that they're fighting right you know they're in fighting in chin state magway <laughs> Uh, Mandalay, Kachin, different parts of Shan State's Kaya State, Bagog, Kayin. I mean, they're they're just fighting everywhere right now. Um, there are very few parts of the country that are free of violence, and even if they were at full manning, I'm just not sure how they would be able to do this. They've, they've never been able to do it in the past, which is why they had this long history of divide and conquer and, you know, fight until they, they, they were really spread thin, reach a temporary ceasefire and then move the troops to where they were needed. Um, this is just unsustainable. Interesting. And, and I mean, just a, it's a, it's a small technicality, but what about fuel? I mean, moving people from point A to point B has to be difficult. Um, and fuel is increasingly hard to come by in Myanmar, or at least that's what the civilian experience is. Is there going to be a point at which, as we've seen with the military economizing on artillery shells, they're going to have to start economizing on fuel expenditure to move their units around? Um Yes, fuel is is getting more costly, and simply because of uh, 
uh, inflation and other economic mismanagement. Um, my guess is that they will always be able to uh, seize the fuel that they they need uh, when they're rolling through towns. They are fueling up, and they are not paying for it. This, I'm sure, they're taking quite a bit at gunpoint. Mm. Um, so, but your point stands, and the the military gave themselves a fifty percent increase in their budget this fiscal year. Uh, so they're up to about two point seven billion dollars. Um, if you assume that a piece of that off the top is just going to be lost to corruption, and that's a good assumption to make in a place like Myanmar. Um, but I, I think it shows the military's frustration and, and basically saying, we, we really have to end this soon because the, the money is running out. Um, but $2.7 billion doesn't go very far in, in modern war. Uh those artillery shells, uh, the planes they fly, the spare parts for the helicopters, the rockets uh, uh, for the helicopters, the bombs they're dropping from their uh, SU uh, fighter jets. You know, these are, are, are really costly things. They're trying to manufacture as much as they can in their own Kepasa factories. Uh, but those are state-run entities. They are poorly administered. They're poorly managed. Uh, we know there's a lot of waste uh, coming out of those. So e- even doing that uh, it is not a uh, silver bullet for them to deal with their dwindling resources. I mean, do they do they have the capacity? Because I think a lot of people... Those of us who don't have a military background, we, we, we tend to think like, you know, a bullet's a bullet. It goes in the gun, it goes bang. But when you start talking to um, sort of weapon people, you start talking to military people, they'll say, well, no, like bullets that were produced in this time period or that were produced in this particular country are highly unreliable. Some of them may have very, you know, they may be spiked. Some of them may be very low. Um, you get bullets lodged in barrels and you'll get explosions, you know, in the chamber that aren't supposed to be there. Uh, is the Myanmar military in a capacity to actually produce these things, other than just making a bullet that looks like a bullet? Is it capable of producing stuff that is going to be reliable in combat? Uh, yes. I mean, s- simple field-grade ammunition, they do have the capacity to make. Um, the You know, is it the best quality in the world, no, um, but but they do are able to manufacture that. They're able to manufacture other uh, uh, like mortar shells and, and, and artillery shells. They've been doing this for a long time. And, and over the years, they spent a lot of money on kind of these 14 key factories to build up indigenous capacity. I still think quality control is an issue. Um, you certainly in, in uh, uh, swampy Southeast Asia, um, uh, you know, our uh, ammunition has a shelf life of about a year uh, before it starts to really degrade uh, in terms of it, its quality um, when you start getting a lot more duds. Uh, but, you know, I, I, th- I think that they are 
able to produce enough uh, from these factories. But again, uh, money is tight. Mm. That's that's very fair. And I, I assume that the military must be aware of these things. I mean, they're, they're stupid, but they're not that stupid. So has there been any change in their tactics and their operations? Or are they just sort of holding on for dear life thinking, well, as long as the PDF breaks, you know, a fraction of a second before we do, everything will be okay? You know, the one thing you can say about them is that they haven't changed their tactics at all. Um, you know, here we are, uh, well over 30 months since the coup, they control less territory than before. Um, the NUG is increasingly able to arm and provide a steady stream of ammunition to their fighters. Um, the military has to worry about their supply lines through uh, the once secure Bama heartland, um, you know, life has gotten a lot harder for them, but there's been no fundamental reassessment of their strategy. What they're doing is simply doing more of what they had done previously. So more attacks on civilians, more arsoning, more of the four cut strategy to terrorize the population into submission. And it has failed. I mean, that's you would you would think that people who have been in military leadership positions and who have gone through the, the the academy and who have you know come from this culture, the military's been running the country on and off for the last what sixty years. Surely they would have developed a slightly more nuanced and robust approach to 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 strategy. Are you saying they've been doing the exact same thing for the last sixty years and never once thought maybe there's a better way? I don't want to go back and revisit history. I'm just thinking about what they've done since since mm. the coup. Um, there has been no kind of reassessment of the fundamental military strategy. And they cannot sit there and think that they're winning. Now, we've seen them kind of say, all right, so last December, there was an important meeting headed by the Ministry of Interior, but all the major players were there. And we know about it because the, 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 the minutes were leaked. And there they basically said, all right, we've got to do a couple new things. We've got to go after the NUG supply of money. How are they raising funds? What can we do with the banks? So they were trying to do things like that. But you didn't see a fundamental shift in their military strategy, right? They, they, they're, they're not trying to, to say, you know, maybe the four-cut strategy is driving the people into the arms of the NUG, which is more legitimate than ever. Um, there's been no drop-off in, in public support for them. So, you know, that to me just says... Uh, that the, the the military is so indoctrinated, they're so convinced of their superiority, just the chauvinism that they they've demonstrated that they're impervious to innovation. But so okay, so what's the prognosis then, purely in military terms? If the military is slowly collapsing and they're losing people to defection and they're losing people to military like battlefield losses. Uh, how how much longer are they feasibly able to hold on? Well, 
they're not going away anytime soon. Um, you know, they can still uh, uh, raise and, and spend $2.7 billion on their military budget. Um, they have natural resource rents. They're still selling oil and gas to China and Thailand. Sadly, there is still some foreign investment coming into the country. Um, you know, revenue across the board is pretty flat other than those natural resource rents, but, but that's, uh, you know, over a billion dollars a year just there. Um, they're still selling gems and timber, um, you know, so there are other sources of revenue for them. Um, the increasing poverty of the country actually helps them in some ways in terms of being able to pay off uh, people to join the militias uh, who do some of their real dirty work that even they don't want to do. Um, people are just desperate for jobs, especially out in some of the more impoverished regions in the countryside where food insecurity is a growing problem. So I think, um, you know, they're, they're, they're not going to collapse anytime soon. Um, you know, they, they can still sell bonds, they can still get support, they can still import weapons at friendship prices from, from key allies and supporters, they can buy on credit. Um, you know, that's all in, in very sharp contrast to the national unity government who's, you know, basically is spending right now about $60 million a year, which is a, a considerable sum. Uh, for a, a and and you know how they've done it is innovative. Um, you know it's it's well thought out, but still the, the they're operating on a shoestring compared to the military. That's I mean, is there is there a possibility of I, I don't want to say sort of North South Korea situation, but a possibility that the military's area of of control shrinks around their sort of heartland Naypyidaw and surrounds um and and you have like an effective bifurcation of the country into clearly military controlled territory and clearly NUG controlled territory where where the the front line is small enough that the military can sustain um pressure on all on all sides uh there are people far smarter than me that have tried to gauge what is under military control and what is under uh, NUG or their allied uh, ethnic resistance organizations under control. My general view is that there's very little territory in the country that the military cannot get to. Um, they cannot hold most of it, but, but there's no place that they probably can't get to. Um, so I'm a little bit skeptical with some of the estimates I've seen out there about effective control by the NUG, but I look for other indicators. Uh, you know, the number of the townships that the NUG is actually collecting taxes in. Uh, is a very good indicator that they have control, the military does not. 
um, you know, start to look at the number of townships where the NUG is starting to set up civil administration, schools, health clinics. And we know they're doing it because the military is actively targeting uh, those institutions. They are targeting NUG schools. They're targeting NUG health clinics. Um, they're targeting NUG offices. Um, so the manifestation of, of NUG state control is infuriating the generals in Napadol. Um, I'm... I know it's harder for the military to to operate in some places. Uh, I'm still cautious in a conflict like this to make clear delimitations of land, whether that this is NUG or Kachin Independence Army Control Territory, and this is uh, uh, military control territory. I think there's a lot of shifting space. What I will say is that the territory that is firmly under military control is diminishing. More and more of the country is contested. Interesting. So it's the ideas that we have, you know, transported from, from the conflicts of you know, the, the 20th century and earlier, where conflicts are defined by changes in territorial control, don't really apply to this conflict, is, is what you're saying. Yeah, I think that's an important point. Um, who has legitimacy? Who collects taxes? Who is providing social services? I think are better ways to look at this. And, and you know, that's not, not from me. I was very influenced by the, the French... Uh, historian Bernard Fall, who, who you know, was in Vietnam in the 1950s. Um, and, and that's how he knew uh, Ho Chi Minh's forces were going to defeat the French. Um, those were the metrics he looked at. Um, and, and, you know, he didn't care about the number of military troops that were deployed or the number of bunkers they had on the road. Uh, I, I think those are uh, falls metrics are much better. Interesting. And in, in terms of those metrics, can we say that the NUG is, is picking up steam or are we looking at a sort of stalemate effectively at the moment? I think it's important to note that every day, from the northernmost part of the country to the southernmost, east to west, despite the threat of arrest, um, of terrible treatment upon arrest, whether sexual violence or being tortured or tortured to death, people are protesting military rule. Every day there are flash mobs in villages around the country protesting military rule. The courage of the people of Myanmar to do this for 30 plus months is astounding. The NUG is not a perfect organization, um, but I think they've done very well under the circumstances. 
And I think it's very fair to say that they continue to enjoy very high rates of legitimacy. Hmm. Fair enough. So let's so let's turn the focus then slightly to that broader context, the civilized the the sorry the, the civilians and uh, what's going on in the in the rest of the country outside of the immediate conflict. What impact is this conflict having? on Myanmar and, and Myanmar's ability to, to recover from, I mean, the destruction up until now and also the, the economic decline that was caused by COVID prior to the coup? Yeah, I don't think uh, enough people outside the country are paying enough attention to not just the conflict, but to the very dire state of the economy right now. Um, you know, in the, the year following the coup, the economy contracted 18%. Now, of course, part of that was related to the pandemic. Um, but the military's absolute incompetence in running the economy has exacerbated this. Um, the World Bank has predicted that the economy is set to grow at Two to three percent this year. Uh, I personally think that's optimistic. I'm, I'm kind of waiting to see whether they're going to readjust their assessment. But still, they have come to the conclusion that the economy has contracted 12 percent since uh, the start of 2021, meaning that a decade's worth of economic growth was just eviscerated uh, by the avarice, the greed, the desire for power of the military. Um, you now have nearly 60% of the population living beneath the poverty line. And, you know, food insecurity is a growing problem. Um, it wasn't lost on me that uh, when Minong Klang uh, spoke to the Moscow International Security Conference and, and was railing against uh, the Americans weaponizing the dollar, he made a very very clear reference in saying that's impacted our ability to import fertilizers and pesticides. So he understands that, that agricultural output is down throughout the country. Um, so we've got all that. Foreign investment, uh, by and large, is pulling out of the country, though it's still coming in from China, Thailand, uh, but but by and large from the West, it's, it's leaving. Um, we know that the government's revenue is pretty flat. Uh, we don't, uh, their budget is a state secret, so, so we don't really know all the numbers there. But what we do have are some predictions that are built into the union taxation law. And every year when, when they uh, submit the law, uh, they have their estimates built into revenue. And if you kind of look through the, the three different union taxation laws since the coup, um, it's very clear that, that the, the, the bureaucrats from the, the military government's own internal revenue department uh, are painting a very grim picture 
revenue from lotteries, from the income tax, corporate taxes, overall natural resource rents and custom duties are either flat or have declined. Um, the only thing that's really gone up for them are rents from oil and gas exports. Um, so, you know, we, we know that the government has real financial problems uh, in terms of the revenue. Uh, they're running out of ways to make money. So one thing that uh, the NUG has been noticing um, and trying to report on it is the fact that the Central Bank of Myanmar has been issuing bonds. Um, now, you can ask who in their right mind would, would invest in a Central Bank of Myanmar under control of the military who in hell would buy these bonds? I mean, this is probably the worst investment you could think of. And yet they're able to go to the cronies who you know, own banks, who own insurance companies, and, and who own large corporations. And they've been forcing them to buy these bonds. Um, we don't really know exactly how much. Um, we have some estimates, uh, 26 trillion chat. Uh, in the past couple of years, which is around $3 billion at black market rates. Um, but, uh, you know, this has to be considered a, a liability for all of those banks and financial institutions. The military government right now has no ability to repay those bonds. Uh, I don't know the full time frame of, of them, but uh, certainly short-term bonds that they can't afford. Um, and the NUG has made it very clear that should there ever uh, uh, be a negotiated settlement or they take control, they will not honor those uh, bonds. So you have these banks that are already in these very precarious uh, financial positions uh, with all these liabilities now on their asset uh, uh, balance sheets. Um uh, so this is something that, that we really need to think about long term. The military uh, has to deal with uh, inflation in the country. It's now 14 percent. It's down from about 18 to 20 percent last year. Uh, but 14 percent inflation is still really high. Uh, this has not been helped by their own economic incompetence, their currency controls, uh, issuing of a new uh, 20,000 chat denominated uh, note, the highest uh, denomination in the country, uh, created an inflationary spike and uh, further decline in the currency's value. The chat's value has declined by 300% since the coup. I mean, that just says so much about the, the military's incompetence and the lack of faith anyone has. So, you know, I, I think the economy is, is the regime's real Achilles heel. Um, they can't provide a, any macroeconomic stability. They run the central bank not as a normal central bank that's trying to deal with economic growth and controlling inflation. Um, they're using it as a, a wartime bank to support the war effort. And, you know, you... You see it, um, whether in the, the, uh, 
price of dollars or the price of gold. So, I mean, you touched on a lot of different things there. So let, let's try to break them down. Let, let's talk about the 20,000 chat because I uh, that one's quite recent. Um, so for those who, who are not aware, the military is issuing a new denomination of 20,000 chat, the highest that has, has yet been issued. And um, it is unusually for the other denominations, it is colored in military green. It features a white elephant, which uh, the military have, have been clinging to as a symbol of, of good fortune for quite some time now with repeated reports of white elephants being discovered under Min Lang's tenure. Now, when the 5,000 and the 10,000 were introduced some years ago, uh, there were fears that this would lead to inflationary spikes. Uh, do you know whether there, there is meaningful comparison between the inflationary spikes that happened after the 5,000 and 10,000 and now under the 20,000, or whether the 20,000 really is unusual in the impact it had? The 20,000 chat note, when, when they released it, they said it was going to be a limited run. So it was just to celebrate this white elephant. Um, not everyone believes them. And, uh, you know, there are people saying, look, when you have 14 to, to 20% inflation, um, you actually need higher denomination notes uh, uh, with more zeros in them. Um, but that, of course, leads to inflation in itself. Um, so I, I'm not sure what the military's thinking is on this. Um, but when you have uh, high levels of inflation, uh, you know, simply issuing a new currency, the highest denomination, uh, is absolutely asinine. Yeah, I mean, the the, the big question for me, uh, you know, I, I, I come from come from a country that has experienced a couple of hyperinflations when you you get to that point because hyperinflation um again for those who don't know is, is when the inflation rate goes so rapid that money effectively loses its meaning and there is no definition of hyperinflation that that i've been able to find uh, like every economist will have a pet theory on what can define it but it seems that it, it's more defined by characteristic behaviors of people and one of the characteristics of hyperinflation is that people lose faith in the currency as a medium of exchange and as a vehicle for the storage of, of wealth. And they start looking for alternative currencies or they start trading in non-fiat currencies, so, you know, trading in alcohol and cigarettes and gold and jewelry and the like. Are we looking at the groundwork for a hyperinflation in Myanmar right now? I'm not an economist, so I, I, I need to be very careful here. Uh, all I would say is the chat was, what, at 1300 to the US dollar uh, at the time of the coup, and it's now at, at record lows at almost 4,000 chat uh, to the dollar. So that's a, a 300% decline. Um, the government is trying to hoard dollars. We know through their currency controls uh, that they are forcing corporations, forcing banks, uh, importers, exporters uh, to sell uh, dollars at the official pegged rate of 2100 chat to the dollar. Um, so we know they're desperate for dollars, but, but everyone else is desperate for dollars too because of the inflation. 
Um, people do not want uh, to hold chat. And at the same time, you see exactly the same thing uh, with gold prices. Uh, you know, people want at least uh, uh, something in, in that's not going to uh, be uh, worthless the next day. Mm. I mean, I, I can definitely understand that. And so what... What what is the reality now for for people on on the ground? Because inflation is one thing, but the the big issue in my experience has been when the cost of the things you want to buy is increasing faster than your salary. Yes. Are, are the people facing that type of a disparity? Are they are they saying, well, my paycheck is is obtaining me fewer items in the shops? Yes, I, I think that is a problem. Uh, again, you know, fourteen to twenty percent inflation is very high. Uh, you know, in in a developed country, when when we have five percent inflation, uh, it's a political uh, crisis for governments uh, because people really feel it. Uh, you know, fifteen percent inflation is really hurting people, especially when. Uh, uh, salaries have been flat. Uh, the economy has contracted 12% in the past 30 months. So, you know, I, I think we do have to uh, understand that, that people, the money isn't going very far. I asked one economist um, about the, you know, is the, the, the military printing money? Are they, are they starting to turn on the, the printing presses? Because if they did, that would lead to more inflation. And the answer I got is, you know, they probably are. And one of the reasons why we're not seeing more inflation is that demand for goods and services is so low right now, uh, just because people are holding on to what they have. Um, you know, by and large, they're, they're not buying things other than what they need to survive, unless it's something that will hold value. I mean, that the, the one thing about that, that that sets off a red flag for me is I distinctly remember that it being a spiral that led to previous economic disasters. I remember this, this was something that happened in the lead up to uh, the Great Depression when People start panicking and they start withholding their money. It causes the economy to slow down, which exacerbates the underlying problems, which causes people to panic even more and so on, which is why governments have historically found it valuable to have investment projects and large-scale infrastructure projects to start getting money into the pockets of people reliably to improve that confidence. If if the Myanmar people are cutting back this much, and, and I, I respect that you're not an economist, but but I'm just asking for your your let's say, informed opinion, is that not going to lead to bigger problems pretty soon? Sure, but the military doesn't know what they're doing, right? When they give themselves a 50% increase in their military budget, it's not because they have more revenue for that. They've taken money away from other departments or, or other social services. They're cutting back education or, or uh, uh, money for public health. Um, so 
you know, the military has less, even fewer resources to do exactly the type of spending and investment uh, that that you rightfully know uh, they need to do. Hmm. I mean, it, 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 it's, I don't know, it just feels like sweeping problems under the rug, but the rug is already a foot higher than it previously was from all of the problems you've swept under it. And you're still just blithely standing there sweeping more problems under the rug like it's all going to be okay. I mean, well, it's difficult that, to imagine that they would be even that incompetent and that stupid. Well, they, they arrested their top, you know, internationally respected central banker. Um, you know, other economists and all the experts were uh, either arrested or, or in exile. Um, you know, the, the few people that are in left who actually have a good sense of the economy have have hitched their wagons to uh, the junta and um, you know with devastating consequences for the economy so times like this when, when we have conflict when we have economic uncertainty um, I'm thinking of sort of post uh, collapse of the Soviet Union Russia comes to mind we we tend to have this wave of cronies coming in thinking now is a good time for me to pick up some stuff now is a good time for me to to make some moves while everything is dirt cheap and no one's really paying any attention to what's going on are we are we seeing something like that happening if you look at the government's investment data whether you can trust this or not According to their data, foreign investment is still in, still coming into the country. The vast majority is Chinese or Thai. There is also money coming in from Singapore, but most of that is believed to be boomerang money. So money coming out of Myanmar, being incorporated in Singapore and invested back in Myanmar, buying up distressed assets. Uh, so there's still some people in the country that have access to dollars that are still making money and, you know, they're getting the money outside the country and bringing it back uh, uh, in terms of foreign investment. And that's probably why in places like Yangon or Mandalay, you still have this property boom. People are buying real estate. In part, that's people trying to deal with inflation, you know, trying to spend their money and have something that, that's still going to be worth something. You can still live in a house um, when, when your currency is losing so much value through depreciation or, or inflation. But at the same time, uh, I think we also have to look at some of the, the, the larger properties and who, where the sellers are are getting that money from you know who's coming in who's buying this stuff and why mm. and an additional problem is and you know when they shut down the corporate registry um, to public access the myco database you know, it, it's very hard now to actually figure out who's buying what. Um, 
known corporations are reincorporating as different companies. You can't do searches of directors. Uh, you don't get to see shareholder information anymore. Um, so they've created this system where, where it's much easier to do this. Fair enough. But so this is, so this is the, the, the top brass taking care of their top people um, that, you know, their corporate allies. And that's something that we see in any crony capitalist structure. So what's, what about the society itself? Like if typically when, when the cronies are picking up everything that's not nailed to the floor, the people have less and less and less. Are we seeing, are we seeing uh, unemployment, for example? Are we seeing a rise in crime? Are we seeing uh, a shift away from a more organized, uh, reliable economy, even within the cities that have been reasonably free of military operations for over a year now, and, and in theory have been allowed to continue economic operations? How has it changed the, the surface of, of the cities? There's still a sense of normality in, in the big cities, according to my friends that I talk to on a pretty regular basis. Um, you know, the restaurants are still open. People are still going to work. And I, I think you're exactly right that the, the, the violence that the NUG threatened to bring into the cities uh, uh, has largely gone away. The regime has really spent a lot of resources to keep the cities uh, free of violence to kind of convince the urban middle class that they have things under control, uh, that, you know, there's fighting, but that's in the border regions where there's always been fighting. Um, yet there is growing unemployment. There are news stories about uh, NGOs that are, need to provide more food assistance on a regular basis. So we know that that uh, food insecurity is a growing problem. Um, without a doubt, crime is starting to climb up in the cities. Uh, just because uh, police who normally had beat cop duties uh, are increasingly being called to other uh, security responsibilities. Wow. And, and so I assume we're seeing... Again, I don't know whether you would have information on this, but we often see the establishment of illicit markets, um, you know, black market trade, just something, whether it's in, you know, goods that the military doesn't want you to have, for example, let's say, you know, US dollars, or whether it's in narcotics, or whether it's in, let's say, weapons for people who have a heightened uh, fear that they might need to have access to weapons should the worst come out. Is there any way to, to know whether we're seeing an increased sort of uh, unofficial illicit market propping things up? No, all we have is anecdotal evidence about this. I, I think it would be very hard to prove or, or get data on that in this environment where the mm. military has really restricted any uh, access to things like that. Fair enough. So, okay, so let's sort of try to make meaningful, I don't want to say predictions, but but let, let's sort of look to the future here. I mean, Myanmar has been doing horrifically economically. Um, in 2021, uh, from memory, every ASEAN member state not only recovered, but rebounded from the economic downturn of COVID. Myanmar was the only country that 
that not only failed to reach pre-COVID levels, but actually continued the decline in 2021. And that decline has only gone on through 2022 and now I think through 2023. Um, what what are we looking at here? Myanmar was never operating at the economic level of, of some of the ASEAN member states. We're not, you know, Vietnam, uh, when we did the power grid interview, I was, I was being informed that Vietnam invested into its solar grid, only into the solar grid, only in one year, power capacity equivalent to the entire electricity grid of Myanmar. This has not been a particularly strong economy, even within ASEAN. What's the prognosis? Are, are we potentially headed towards complete economic collapse? Can this be salvaged? Is it likely to be? Um, Myanmar was not at that rate of some of the other ASEAN members, but but for many years, uh, they had some of the highest growth rates in Southeast Asia. They had a lot of catching up. Um And they had done some of the easy things. And right before the coup happened, uh, the NLD government was starting to take on some of the really hard uh, things that that were going to lead to more sustained growth over a longer period of time. Most importantly, things like banking reform. Um, So we'll never know uh, where the country would have gone. Um, that's a counterfactual right now. But we can focus on just the just criminal uh, economic uh, stewardship of the country right now. Um, I really don't know how the country will recover should the military collapse even tomorrow. It would be uh, a long, hard road for whoever governs the country. Um, But I don't think it's going to end tomorrow. I think we've got probably a few more years of this uh, uh, slow hollowing out of the military, uh, the hollowing out of the economy. Um, The only thing that I, I really believe that could really bring the military to its absolute knees right now is if their foreign reserves that are overseas right now, uh, over $6 billion, uh, were frozen. And I I, I just don't see that happening. So, you know, the, the economy is going to continue to weaken and the country is going to fall further and further behind its ASEAN neighbors. And it's heartbreaking. So, you know, despite despite the fact that the military is not going well, despite the fact that the economy that they're exploiting to keep up their, their military efforts is, is clearly floundering, you don't see the system itself collapse. Like, it, it needs external um force it's not just going to magically stop because the money runs out for the military yeah the the state always has these inherent advantages i mean they just have more resources even an incompetently run uh economy uh you know has resources for for the government to mobilize for their war effort um 
I, I just, they have assets to sell. They have corporations. Um, they have different taxes they can collect. You know, they all these things that the government has. You know, they're trying to revitalize their, their lottery. They now have a digital lottery to compete with the MUG. Um, so, you know, they're trying. They know that they have these financial weaknesses that they're trying to address. Um, what they don't have is competent leadership. Um, so they're, they're not getting very far. Um, but I, I don't see this conflict ending anytime soon. I think the NUG strategy all along has been hollow out the military, hollow out the economy, um, try to deny the government revenue uh, to the point that they can no longer conduct this war. And do you, so do you feel that that strategy is the correct strategy? Is it an effective strategy? Or do you think that a, a change in, in approach is needed? I think it's the only strategy available to the MUG right now. And I, th I think they're executing it as well as they can, given their limited resources. Um, the PDFs are better armed. There is a steady supply of ammunition that's getting out to, you know, maybe not enough, but it's getting out to all 300 of their PDFs. Um, and you start to see some of the results on the battlefield. Um, they are gaining ground. Uh, there is more, as I, as I said before, it might be contested territory, but it's certainly not military-controlled territory anymore. Um, the NUG is focused a lot more. If you kind of look at what they've been doing and targeting in the past a uh, couple months focusing on logistics networks, uh, really going after the military's ability to wage war. And they're starting to see some more results. And I, I think they deserve a lot of credit for battlefield innovation and improved tactics. But all that said, that strategy is not going to bring the military to their knees anytime soon what they need to do is make sure that the military is aware that they cannot conduct military operations anymore. They simply don't have the manpower. They don't have the resources. Fair enough. Fair enough. So there is, I suppose then, at the very least, there is a light at the end of the tunnel that the the PDF and the NUG and the, and the ethnic armed organizations are pursuing the optimal strategy and it is a strategy that is likely going to lead to successful outcomes down the road. And you are saying that they're improving their, uh, their, their operations, they're improving their capacity, they're improving their innovation. So all, all in all, compared to the last time that we, that we spoke, and I know the last time we spoke, it was, it was quite negative. Do you feel that the situation has become somewhat better or are you at least feeling a little bit more optimistic than last time? I am a bit more optimistic this time. Um, again, I, the NUG really spent a lot of time last year on the logistics side, um, and you're seeing the results, making sure that they have a steady supply of weapons and ammunition. Um, you know, that eats up most of their budget. Um, they've worked very hard 
in terms of things like establishing the Spring Development Bank, which is not just uh, a means to to raise funds, um, you know, as a commercial bank, they're they're trying to make money, uh, but they're also trying to figure out ways that they can get money uh, around to the different units. Uh, to get funds uh, uh, to different line ministries, a better way to get money from outside uh, the country, inside and, and working. Um, so they've been very creative. Um, they deserve a lot of credit for what they've done in the past year. And uh, again, you kind of look at what the military was not able to do during their dry season offensive, um, the lack of innovation, just more, just the four cuts on steroids, uh, kind of reeks of desperation. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're not deterring the public from supporting the NUG or the PDFs. Um, and, and finally, I would just say that the economic situation for the junta has just gotten so much worse. Um, we're, we're really starting to get a better peak inside uh, uh, through leaks uh, from uh, civil servants uh, about just how dire the economic situation is. I mean, yeah, I think I think all of this is important to know, even if it's not, you know, the the amazing happy news that we want to hear that the revolution is succeeding and we are moments away from from a complete defeat of the military. I think it's still that that little light at the end of the tunnel that that tells you that there is there is something to keep going for and there is something to keep fighting for um and so i want to i want to thank you for coming and i want to thank you for sharing these uh, these insights with us and 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 helping us to develop a more nuanced perspective of the conflict yeah it's very hard you know with the daily barrage of human rights abuses and and what fills our screens when we wake up in the morning um because this is a, a, a military that just has no, no bottom in terms of what they w- are willing to do. It's really easy to, to be disheartened when, when you see the death toll rise every day. Um, and yet I think that the people of Myanmar deserve such credit for the sacrifices they're willing to make for a better life for their next generation, um, to bring about a, a peaceful country, um, you know, that, that has a chance of establishing a true federal democracy. Um, and so I, I am, you know, whenever I get down about this situation, which is often, um, I'm just struck by the, the, what the people of Myanmar are, are willing to shoulder every day. And that's really inspiring. Some love, Mumiazwa, Yen means and way. 
Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode in full. And if you've gotten this far, then you've heard much of what this important guest has to say. And if you found their story of value, please consider taking a further step beyond just being a listener and becoming an active supporter. Any donation you provide is now going to support the democracy movement in Myanmar to help those being impacted by the current crisis. If you would like to join in our mission to support those in Myanmar who are being impacted by the military coup, we welcome your contribution in any form, currency, or transfer method. Your donation will go on to support a wide range of humanitarian and media missions, aiding those local communities who need it most. Donations are directed to such causes as the Civil Disobedience Movement, CDM, Families of Deceased Victims, Internally Displaced Person IDP Camps, Food for Impoverished Communities, Military Defection Campaigns, Undercover Journalists, Refugee Camps, Monasteries and Nunneries, Education Initiatives, the Purchasing of Protective Equipment and Medical Supplies, COVID Relief, and more. We also make sure that our donation fund supports a diverse range of religious and ethnic groups across the country. We invite you to visit our website to learn more about past projects as well as upcoming needs. You can give a general donation or earmark your contribution to a specific activity or project you would like to support, perhaps even something you heard about in this very episode. All of this humanitarian work is carried out by our nonprofit mission, Better Burma. Any donation you give on our Insight Myanmar website is directed towards this fund. Alternatively, you can also visit the Better Burma website, betterburma.org, and donate directly there. In either case, your donation goes to the same cause and both websites accept credit card. You can also give via PayPal by going to paypal.me slash betterburma. Additionally, we can take donations through Patreon, Venmo, GoFundMe, and Cash App. Simply search Better Burma on each platform and you'll find our account. You can also visit either website for specific links to these respective accounts or email us at info at betterburma.org. That's Better Burma, one word, spelled B-E-T-T-E-R-B-U-R-M-A dot org. If you would like to give it another way, please contact us. We also invite you to check out our range of handicrafts that are sourced from vulnerable artisan communities across Myanmar, available at alokacrafts.com. Any purchase will not only support these artisan communities, but also our nonprofit's wider mission. That's Aloka Crafts, spelled A-L-O-K-A-C-R-A-F-T-S, one word, alokacrafts.com. Thank you so much for your kind consideration and support. Oh, ba, yaranan, da, da, yaranan, 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 da,